Welcome to Disco Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Matthew Stout, who is the co-founder and CEO of Applied VR, a company that is improving the lives of patients with chronic pain through safe, effective, and self-administered virtual reality therapeutics. And Matthew's a multi-time founder. He sold his last company, Outcast Media, to Verifone, and he started Applied VR really make an impact in the world and that's exactly what he's done with this company they've worked with over 60,000 patients including getting a thousand devices into patients homes directly they've published seven studies and they've raised 23 million dollars being backed by 150 institutions including the national institute of drug abuse the national cancer institute the va cedar sinai cleveland clinic geisinger and more and all in an effort to help people with chronic pain this episode is brought to you by Hawk Media, a full-service outsourced CMO based in Santa Monica, California, providing guidance, planning, and execution to grow brands of all sizes, industries, and business models. Hawk Media is recognized by Inc. as one of the fastest-growing marketing consultancies, and their collaborative process, a la carte offering, and month-to-month fee structure give clients the flexibility they need to boost digital revenues and marketing ROI. Hawk Media, the company, has serviced over 1,500 brands of all sizes, ranging from startups like Tomorrow Melon, SIO Beauty, and Bottle Keeper, to household names like Red Bull, Verizon Wireless, and Alibaba. And also, I had the founder and CEO of Hawk Media, Eric Huberman, on the podcast in episode number 23, if you want to take a listen. And to get a free consultation, head on over to hawkmedia.com, and be sure to mention Just Go Grind. Without further ado, here is Matthew Stout, the co-founder and CEO of Applied VR. Matthew, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here, Justin. Yeah, there's a lot to dive in with with Applied VR as well as your, your past history with entrepreneurship and being the CEO founders of different companies. With Applied VR, though, for people who aren't familiar, and I've looked around the website and watched a couple of videos, and it's, it's pretty amazing, but can you tell people what it is, what you're doing with Applied VR right now? Yeah, so what we're doing is we're uh, combining the therapeutic power of VR, which not a lot of people know about, uh, with uh, uh, proven clinical methods to bring to market uh, pretty powerful uh, tools that patients can use to manage their pain. We actually started off in the acute pain space, but uh, we recognized that the more limitation of the product itself than the need And so we ultimately ended up migrating into chronic pain, which is just a massive issue here in the States, affects over 100 million patients, and uh, we spend about $600 billion a year on it. And so uh, given the fact that opioids was pretty much the way we like to solve pain in the past, and we all know just how absolutely devastating opioids are, uh, we think we have an opportunity to really make a big impact here and, and help patients improve their lives. That's awesome. And this is such a huge, I mean, like I said, a huge issue. It's something that when I looked at the company is doing more research, I'm like, this is something where it's like, how do you even begin to kind of tackle this? And so I'm curious on how you, how you got started. I mean, how did this actually start? How did you get involved? Because it it, it is seemed like a, a massive undertaking, I should say. Yeah. So actually the, uh, you know, the, the path that I took to get here is probably the path that a lot of entrepreneurs follow. Uh, which is not the path they thought they were going to take. Uh, <laughs> when I so my last company was uh, it was called Outcast, and we fear anyone ever goes to a gas station and see those terrible flat screens at a gas pump. 
Uh, I'm the reason for that, and I'm uh, I'm still making amends. Uh, but once I sold the company back in 2014, I you know it was, it was funny. I, I thought I would wake up the next morning and and feel great about it and all of that. And uh, I actually woke up at about 3 a.m. completely stressed out because I had no idea what I was going to do in my life. And uh, I sat there, and the only thing I knew was that I never wanted to touch a gas pump again, and I never wanted to touch uh, advertising again. Just to, to tough industries. Yeah. And so, um, so I had to go on a vision quest and really try to figure out what it was that I was going to do next in my life. And I, uh, it, you know, I think this is where, uh, sometimes universe just talks to you. I, you know, the one overarching belief I had was that, you know, the life is a book and we are all responsible for contributing a chapter to the book. And I knew that my chapter certainly was not going to be dominated by advertising at a gas pump. And so I had a lens of, you know, what am I going to do that's going to make a real impact in this world? And that was uh, completely driven by, by that one single thought of how to make an impact. And my wife happened to be flying back from Miami. Uh, when I'm going through my vision quest, she sits next to the CMO of Magic Leap, and he regales her for five hours with how this uh, new world of AR, VR is going to, you know, the next big computing platform is going to change everything. And she comes back fired up like motivational speaker man and says, <laughs> I don't know what you're doing, Matthew, but you got to do something in this world of AR, VR. And so uh, just fired up by that conversation, you know, from, from her inspiration, I went out and met with Oculus and a bunch of the other different players that were doing stuff in it. And it was interesting. The first, what I saw was uh, that it, you know, everyone was talking about sort of the uh, entertainment and gaming. And yeah. all of that was interesting. And I think it's, it can be really compelling, but one, it didn't hit my mark for uh, when to make impact in the world. And two, it was all predicated on a model that said, you build the content and magically the distribution of the hardware will be there. And that's a pretty tough model to sit yeah. there and just basically not be in control with a major component of, of that you need for success for your business. And so I'm scratching my head, trying to figure out what to do with it. And I then get introduced to my now partner, Dave Sackman. And uh, he had done a TEDx talk, uh, talking about the power of VR to drive positive behavior change. You know, we all like to think that we make our decisions rationally and, and uh, based on evidence and science. But, you know, we, we, make, we tend to make our decisions more on uh, non, the non-conscious or the unconscious the biases that we carry around with us. So sometimes we're not even aware of sort of that gut feel and, yeah. uh, and it, VR can be incredibly powerful to actually help change people's behavior. So as he was going through and talking about this, one of the things that he had talked about with all the different ways that it can be used for this is he, he brought up a use case uh, from a, a scientist named Hunter Hoffman, a researcher up at the university of Washington. I was talking about how he had been using VR as a powerful analgesic. And he'd even done some research that demonstrated that you could use VR uh, to, that, that it could outperform pain. He, he did a, a tested control and looked at it and on both a subjective and objective basis, subjective being you talk about your, you know, your zero to 10, how do you feel pain scores, but then also using objective metrics, looking at the actual brain patterns, different regions of the brain that are associated with pain. And he demonstrated that when the patient was in VR, that it actually had, was impacting more of the brain areas than uh, opioids were. Jeez. And now this was back in the early 1990s, before we ever had an opioid epidemic. 
fast forward to, you know, just even a couple of years ago, and here's are some crazy stats for you about opioids. One, we're uh, 5% of the world's population. We consume about 85% of the world's supply of opioids. Jeez. Two, these opioids that we consume almost like candy. Uh, if you take uh, an opioid for uh, one, is it, it's one day, you've got about a 6% chance of being addicted a year from now. If you take it for one week, you've got about a 15% chance. And if you take it for one month, you've got about a near uh, 50% chance of being addicted. So they're incredibly addictive. Now, later on top of that, where we were, where we, where we are, and I think it's only getting, it's getting exacerbated during this COVID period, but these opioids that we're just consuming left and right, they're killing us. It's literally the equivalent of a 747 going down every three days and killing everyone on board. Jesus. And, and that is what we've been using to manage pain, whether it be acute or chronic. So you had this amazing technology that was, you know, there've been hundreds of studies demonstrating the power of VR as an analgesic in the middle of this opioid crisis going on. And, but but the, the big barrier has always been the form factor of the technology. And it's only been now that we can start to bring this amazing technology from the laboratory in any type of scalable way and now bring it into the marketplace. And so it was that sort of insight when, when David given his TEDx talk and I saw this and I started to put the pieces together and we said, wow, we have an opportunity here to make a real difference. And, uh, and we've been on, on that path ever since. And, and since then, I mean, just for people's perspective, I mean, I think it's like 30,000 patients and like 300 hospitals, multiple you know, countries, obviously you've really expanded and done a lot with this, but going back to 2015, when you, you hear this, you have these, this idea and you've gone through kind of a, a thought process of selling your last company, wanting to do something else. I mean, what were some of the first things you were doing then for applied VR to make this a reality, understanding how big of a problem it was, where did you start on? Uh, what this was going to be, the form factor then, I mean, I'm sure it's evolved, but early on, how, yeah. how are you thinking about it? So when you, it's about understanding a problem. And I'll tell you the thing about healthcare, it, 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 but on the one hand, healthcare, I mean, this, there's, there's screwed up industries and then there's healthcare screwed up. <laughs> and that's because you've got so many different players and, and misaligned incentives, you know, just the way that we think about reimbursement and all these different elements that come to play. It is a huge Byzantine industry that can take a long time to drive change. And uh, I honestly, I when I came in, I don't, I didn't know nearly what I know now. Obviously, and uh, you know, as, as an entrepreneur, you you come in and you you make your you have your theses and you go out there or hypotheses, I guess, and you go out there and you you start to test it, and you have to evolve quickly. And I've always had a mantra. That says, you know, at the end of the day, uh, what will what will ultimately drive our success 100% is the quality of the team that we have because we're going to get things wrong and we should get things wrong if we're going to test and try to break the mold. But you right. got to have an incredibly bright, talented team that can pivot quickly, get up, and keep going forward. And so we've made a ton of mistakes as we went through this thing, you know. And, and we and I would love to say that you know where we've ended up is exactly where we thought we would be. <laughs> uh, that, you know, absolutely not. Although I will say the one North star that we have always had throughout this entire time is the belief that where we're going to make the biggest impact in healthcare is by getting a device into the home, because that's ultimately where you're going to create the greatest access for patients, 
convenience for patients, and also you have the biggest opportunity to reduce cost of care, which is incredibly important for the uh, the payers when you're thinking yeah. about a reimbursement model. And that's the one. And, and I'll tell you what's what's fascinating about COVID. So you have this industry that's incredibly slow and uh, to move, but suddenly you have this once in a lifetime event that hits. And the thing, the impact that it's had is it's been on four areas. Uh, it's all, I call them the four healths, home health, digital health, telehealth, and mental health. Right now you've got patients that are isolated, that are extremely stressed. Uh, they have a high anxiety. And that is, those are huge uh, elements that exacerbate chronic conditions, in our case, chronic pain. Second, you've got payers recognizing that we need to actually figure out how do we accelerate the adoption of these, these tools, digital tools that certainly you know, didn't leave people even think about five years ago. You've got CMS coming out, right? CMS for Medicare, Medicaid coming out and saying, you know, we're, we're going to now start reimbursing telehealth at, a, at an equivalent rate of someone going in to see a doctor live. So you have all of these. So there, you have this sort of cataclysmic event. And being an optimist in my life, I view this as a silver lining is that it's in opening up an entire new category and accelerating the adoption of this digital health category like never before. Now, yeah. obviously, when we were building this business, you could never build it around, hey, what, there's going to be a pandemic that comes in the future. <laughs> but, right. uh, but we're certainly absolutely benefiting it from it because we had this one fundamental belief that if we can get devices into the hands of patients in their homes, we are going to make an impact in their lives. And it just so happens that all of this came together. At, you know, we just literally p- published our most recent chronic pain uh, randomized controlled trial in JMIR. And uh, we just completed our uh, uh, the next version of our chronic pain product and treatment. All of these things came to fruition at just the right time to be able to go and help patients out when they're in their sort of greatest moment of need. And so it's years of work to get to this point. You mentioned the team being such a vital part of this, obviously being able to adapt and building that solid team. I mean, how have you gone about building you know, a world-class team for this, understanding that you need some A players on this team to make this a reality and really do, do it justice? How have you gone about that process? Yeah, so, so I think it's it's twofold, and, and it's going to be a little bit different if you're a, a second time, you know, successful entrepreneur versus the first time. First sure. time you're going through it, and uh, it, it really is just trying to understand the DNA. I always talk about the DNA of people. What is it that motivates them to perform, to to drive harder, and how can you assess that, and how can you get to understand that person? So, you know, we we probably take both my last company and this company we take a lot longer than most companies probably do in making hiring decisions because we want to make sure that we do as good of a job as we can at getting it right. We're never going to get it 100%, but you're, you, if you really are thoughtful about the types of people that you think from a you know, personality type and what drives them and all of that, uh, you can do a, a pretty good job of uh, bringing in some talent. Second thing is you got to be able to tell them a story, help them connect to what it is you're doing. And I'll tell you, uh, and I'll give you a contrast between what we're doing now and what we did at Outcast. At Outcast, right, it's advertising at a gas pump. There is no real mission behind that. You're not really rallying the troops to go say, all right, let's get one more one more screen on one more gas pump and get one more advertiser for it. That doesn't really inspire people. Yeah. So we made it not about the actual uh, end product, but we made it about each other. 
you know, I, I, I always, I'm really drawn to the military and this whole idea of how do you build bonds so that their mission is to protect the person to the right and the person to their left. Because that's what you care about. So we were at Outcast, we were, we really did a great job in building a culture that focused on each other. We sort of used Outcast as we were Outcast, going out there doing something totally different, had never been done before. And it wasn't about what we were doing, it was more about each other doing it together. Now you take all those great learnings that we had, and I'll tell you one of the biggest compliments I ever got was from some of my team when we, you know, we'd, we'd gotten acquired by Verifone and the employees as they naturally do end up going off in different directions, some going with Verifone, but across the board, every one of them came back and would send a note to me or call me up and say, you know, Matthew, I know some of the stuff we talked about, our values and how you would drill those three values in every day. I always thought it was a little bit corny, but now that I'm somewhere else, I really appreciate what it was that you did. You gave us a, a way of connecting with each other and, and a language that we could all use with each other. And it kept ourselves focused on on this sort of internal mission of, of helping each other out, right? So yeah. now roll forward to uh, where we are with Applied VR, and now we have a mission, right? We're helping patients, and we can actually tell patient stories where you hear over and over again how a patient finally, for the first time, finds hope in their life because of something that we're creating. Layer that on top of all the learnings that I had as, an, as a first-time entrepreneur back at Outcast with how do you build that team, uh, that, that, that team bonding. Now we have a real mission beyond just simply each other. And man, it is powerful. Yeah. So, uh, so just to close the loop on that, the last thing on, in terms of hiring, what, what the benefit I have as being a second time CEO or third time CEO is that I actually, some of the people that were the absolute rock stars that I worked with before I bring with me. So I'm not starting from scratch all over again. It's uh, actually bringing in a, a base of great players that I know what drives them. I know what motivates them. Uh, my COO is an example from my old company. Um, but at the same time, then going out and, and, you know, applying the same skills. And I've always believed that in my case, my superhero power is the ability to identify talent and motivate talent with that story that helps them connect to why they want to be here and, uh, why they want to, you know, work really hard because it is challenging and it's not easy. And, you know, all yeah. of us here at Applied VR have scars on our bodies from trying to climb that mountain that we talk about. Uh, but every day, every way, we all get back up and we keep doing it because we care about each other and we care about the patients that we're trying to help. And there's a couple of notes to just worth mentioning on that part. Like one being like the combination of a mission plus your values and that goes a long way in terms of building the team. I mean, that seems like such a, a great thing you've been able to do. And the second thing uh, being relationships that you've had from your past company and past companies, uh, still keeping in touch and having those those relationships goes a long way in business. And we talked before the interview briefly like about MBA and like that was something I always wanted was to have lifelong relationships with people, not just for a year or two during the school, but you know, continue that on because who knows what opportunities there are to, to build a business, to work together, whatever down in the future. So I think people, especially early in their careers, but even if they're so middle middle of their career, like there's still people you probably know that can be helpful, useful, uh, mutually beneficial as well as you're moving forward to build other things and do other things in your life. And it's cool to see that you've been able to do that with applied VR. And and one thing that we we haven't discussed, I really want to get into is I'm curious because I've seen I've seen the videos and a little bit about the experience. But 
what is the actual like the experience of using applied VR for the patients? What does that look like? What is that is that you know a couple minutes a day? Like I'm curious about that. Yeah. Uh, so when we develop this, you know, we'll focus on our, our chronic pain platform. So yeah, it's a you know we brought in subject matter experts, and our our essentially our chief medical officer is a woman named uh, Beth Darnall. She is a pain psychologist out of Stanford, and probably one of the top three or four pain psychologists in the world, works regularly with the uh, FDA and CDC, and you know, this whole opioid crisis has been something that she's been really focused on. But you're, you'll hear this term, and, and for chronic conditions, and pain is is the kind of the core of it, that they'll refer to it as a biopsychosocial condition. And what that means is that it's not just simply the the, the neurons, if you will, or the the, you know, the, um, the pain signals that you're feeling that affect your interpretation of pain, but it's also the psychological side of your, you know how you your anxiety, your depression that feeds into it, as well as the social side of it, your ability to connect with others. I think that's why you'll hear about you know the, the value of community. But for the longest time, we focused solely on that biological component of it, hence the opioids or injections or surgery but not really thinking about that biopsychosocial uh, paradigm. And in fact, yeah. actually, uh, it was just in July that IASP, which is kind of the, the overarching pain body, uh, did the first redefinition of pain in over 40 years that finally kind of updated it to what people were starting to recognize, this biopsychosocial side. So when we developed this, we actually uh, worked closely with Beth and some other subject matter experts to build a program that is not only about simply trying to provide pain relief in the moment, uh, but we recognize obviously you can't live your life in the goggles. So yeah. it's how do you teach that person skills that they can use to enable them to improve the quality of their life outside of the goggles over time? Draw, you know, you're really what you're doing is you're putting, you need to put a person in a neuroplastic state so their brain is, is in a position where it can change and then teach them skills on how to change that brain, how to change their perception, how to process that pain in a different way. And so we've developed this eight-week program, and it literally each week we take you through a different component. And the other thing we recognize is that it's got to be easy to use and digestible, right? If it's complicated, if it's a long time, people aren't going to do it. No matter how efficacious it is, people are going to lose interest. Yeah. And so we really think about uh, you know, bringing in some of the engagement science and gaming mechanics to connect that person so, so that they want to come and do this. And we make it digestible. So it's, we're not talking you know, hours a day. We're talking literally as short as two to three minutes, as long as 15 minutes. And when you, when you start to break it down that way, then they start to say, Jesus, this doesn't seem like it's overwhelming. They actually, when they go into VR, they, they find it incredibly compelling. And they want to come back and want to do it more. We're in, in the middle of a trial right now, and we're seeing, you know, well, halfway through the program, ninety some percent, right around ninety percent adherence, which is amazing Oof, for for something. That's incredible. Like this. Yeah. yeah. And so the types of content they're, they're, they'll see is, you know, in some cases there's going to be elements of distraction, which so that would be more like where you're taking them to under the water and they're going to go swim with dolphins and things of that nature, and you're using that as a moment to help break them from thinking about where you know where they are the pain that they're in the isolation that they feel and it helps them almost this sense of escapism 
and uh, and that that actually just by some, you know it's a form of in a sense hijacking the brain. We can get them to to break that that cycle of just thinking constantly about their own pain. But then it's, it goes into teaching skills, and so we have as an example we've developed a proprietary um, a bio data platform where we actually capture your breath real time. And then we translate that into VR and you can see your breath materialize in the world of VR <laughs> and it has you do different things. So there's one where we're teaching you some focus skills and there it's foggy. And the, the, the more you get on pace with your breathing, the fog clears away. And I mean, it's a powerful thing when you can actually see, you know, your, your breath materialized and, and then, you know, from an educational perspective, we also include educational content that helps them understand why they do certain things. So as an example, the breathing, what is that impact on the parasympathetic nerve? What is the impact on the nervous system when you're breathing at a certain pace? And we can take you into your body and something that you could never feel or touch on your own. In VR, you actually can go into your own body and start to have an empathetic connection with something that's going on inside yourself. And that becomes a pretty powerful tool for, for driving change. And, and Matthew, to that point, you... And there's a hardware side, a software side. I mean, how are you looking at both? Because there's the actual hardware itself and how that's advancing from companies who are doing that. But then you, you mentioned the breath side of it and like different things with the headsets that we have. Like, how are you looking at both sides of that for applied VR? Yeah, that's always the challenge, right? You don't necessarily control the whole ecosystem. So, right. you know, we first and foremost on the hardware side, we always said that we want to be mobile. We, so we started off in the Samsung gear all the limitations of it, but we also recognize that, you know, you, you develop your chops in developing, you know, mobile self-administered programs, then as the technology itself, which I've always viewed the technology as the barrier here, that's only going to get better and better and better. And in fact, I'll tell you the, the one, there was a, I wouldn't call it evolutionary, I'd call it revolutionary moment is when they came out with the all-in-one headset. So for, for those that don't know it, you know, most of your heavy end systems are tethered to big computers and uh, they can still be a little bit expensive and yeah. uh, although not relative to pastimes. But, you know, it, it was it was uh, basically a, almost like a PlayStation connected at home and you're connected to a laptop or to a, a you know a computer uh, that you, you had. The, the flip side of that was you had cell phones that you would take your cell phone and you plug it into a head mounted display, HMD and that was sort of converted into a, a, a mini light VR device. The all-in-ones was effectively they were able to combine both together. And once that happened, Oculus came out with theirs and a bunch of other players that came out with them. Uh, that was the moment that really, I think, started to unleash the power of VR because you, you know, when you think about healthcare, it skews older. And so if it's hard to use or complicated, it's, gonna, you know, yeah. it's never going to get used. And so that was a, a key turning point. For us, you know, at long term, we're ultimately agnostic. We think at some point there will be enough devices out there uh, that you'll see ubiquity of this, and it'll be a future of sort of our well-validated, uh, endorsed products that are reimbursed by health, uh, by payers. Uh, but we won't have to worry about the hardware piece of that. But honestly. That is years and years and years from now. <laughs> uh, yeah. So what we do is we focus. You know, we're, our partner is Pico, and uh, you know they are they're not really going after the consumer side like like Oculus is. Uh, Pico is trying to be an enterprise type player, and so we we come in and we work closely with them, but we take it and we completely override it, 
and uh, and put on our own software because we need to think about privacy issues, uh, HIPAA compliance. Uh, we got to think about uh, ease of use for patients who you know may not understand this, the idea of what a controller is and how they connect that controller to the headset. So you know we you actually said start off saying we've been thirty thousand. We're probably now at about sixty thousand patients that we've immersed, and wow. there is a ton of learnings that we've gotten from these 60,000 patients and how they've been using it. The other one that we like to tout now is, you know, we've sent over a thousand devices into the home and that's given us a tremendous amount of insight into what works, what doesn't work. Uh, because ultimately, you know, it's got to work in the wild. You'll, you'll hear that yeah. and you'll hear about that, you know, when, what payers care about and doctors care about is, will these patients actually use it on their own and they're, you know, in the, from the comfort of their own homes. And so, Again, from a design perspective, we have been maniacally focused on that ease of use for a patient in the home. And we've got the evidence behind us, that real world evidence behind us that helps inform our design strategies. Well, to that point, Matthew, with, with those 60,000 patients, I mean, what are some of those things you're seeing? What, what is some of, that, some of that feedback that, okay, this is great. This is where we can improve. I'm just curious about that. Yeah. So uh, I'll give you, you know, one of the first insights that we had was uh, that it's it's not a one size fits all. What may what piece of uh, one piece of content that may work for person A may not work for person B, and so you it's really ultimately about delivering personalized uh, care to the patient yeah. so that they can you know if they that's where you can build algorithms in. So from a machine learning perspective, that recognize which ones they they that they work that they use more that they spend more time in, and then you can start to deliver that up more of that type of content more frequently. Um, that, you know, that, that's one example as, as we get built, you know, we've built out a whole platform for bio data. And so we, we, if we can read a bio signal, we can use that to actually drive the experience inside VR. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the key question is how do you deliver that at scale, right? If you're, again, it goes back to, if you're requiring someone to put on a separate device, we did, uh, we were working on a project with Cedar sinai and uh, first we had this big idea that we were going to use all different types of biosensors on, you know, they would wear these uh, Fitbits and uh, Samsung watches and it would connect right into the headset. And it was a disaster because they, you know, as much as we like to think about interoperability, it doesn't always work. Or if, they, if it loses a signal or something happens and then the person gets frustrated and then they're like, you know what, this just isn't worth it. It's, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do this thing. So it's going through experiences like that where we, where we start to understand that sort of workflow design and that ease of use. And we, you know, we always will interview and run all the clinical studies. We, we, we try to you know, get as much information back as we can about um, the one, the, the types of content that work, the, you know, from even as simple as the voices that we use to the words that we use to the, um, how you simply turn the device on and get into the first experience. And, uh, and it's, you know, it's almost every way that a patient touches the device, we've gotten an insight on how to make it better. And we're maniacally focused on that. Yeah. Yeah. And with that too, with these 60,000 patients, I mean, if you, you have this idea at the beginning for, for this insight of, okay, we're going to use VR. This is going to be uh, great for helping people manage pain and a variety of other kind of use cases as well. But ultimately you this can't do anything if it doesn't get in the hands of these patients. I mean, how have you gone about on the partnership side of it, getting this in the hands of as many patients as possible? Yeah. So, you know, when, when we started building this thing out, uh, there's two things that we thought about. 
three things. One is uh, we needed to make sure that uh, we were based on on evidence and science, right? This is we're going into healthcare. We want to be the most trusted, credible brand in the world of VR therapeutics. And so we started to do our foundational studies with some of the marquee brands out there like Cedar sinai uh, We ended up partnering with uh, NIDA, National Institute of Drug Abuse. They're funding two of our studies at Cleveland Clinic and Geisinger. And so we you know, either uh, have completed or in the process of completing over 30 clinical studies uh, to, you know, that really goes toward validating the, the product. So you've got to have that science behind you. And the fact that we've published now seven of our studies, that's a huge number. And yeah. it goes, just goes to, to demonstrate how seriously we take that side of this. Second piece of this is then um, the brands that we work with. So it's, you know, one, you have the, the, the foundational studies, then you have the brands like the Cedars, Sinai's, the Cleveland Clinics of the world. Those are all trusted brands. Um, and then it, the third piece of that, those brands feed into that ecosystem. The ecosystem is going to be everyone from the hardware manufacturers, from our case, the partnership with Pico to uh, advocacy groups like the American Chronic Pain Association to um, payers who are developing, you know, we're, we're starting to work with multiple payers now to develop the body of evidence that's required to be able to make this a reimbursable product um, to the, uh, to, you know, even developing some pharma relationships here, recognizing that if you're going to drive transformation in healthcare, you've got to tap into that entire ecosystem. And yeah. I'll tell you, I think this is one thing that, you know, some companies can tend to do is They'll say, "Hey, I'm going to, especially for digital health, I'm going to make a rush to go get the, my device to, or my my application to be cleared by the FDA." And they say, "Great, I'm done. I've got it." But they just all they have is one very small first step, and it's a it's a great step, but it's one small piece of this. It, who cares if you are cleared by the FDA if you don't have doctors willing to write prescriptions for it? Or exactly. you don't have patients that want to use it, or that you don't have, you haven't done the the work around your. It's called HEOR data. It's health economics outcomes research data for the payers to demonstrate that my application, my device, actually reduces money or you know reduces costs in the system. And so, uh, and that you now that's so we've taken that that ecosystem approach to really drive this. And and here's the the, the beautiful thing when you if you start off architecting this the right way. We talk about the three P's, patients, providers, and payers. A lot of times you'll get, you'll definitely get one of the three. A lot of times you'll get two of the three. But if you can do something that actually hits on all three of those P's that hits a, an unmet need for the patients, providers, and payers, and it happens to be in a massive space like chronic pain as an example, you have the opportunity to create a true legacy worthy transformation of healthcare. Yeah. And that's why we're so excited about what we're doing. One of the things that I want to go back to, because it can't be kind of just glossed over you building to build a great team to build this, they have to get paid somehow. How, how have you gone about the, on the funding side of it? I know there's been grants. I'm curious with that uh, on the funding side to make this company uh, continue to run. So you can't have the impact you want to have. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, just as an aside, I always had this romantic notion of what it was like to go be a CEO, you know, starting up a company and you get to think about strategy and product and business development <laughs> and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, you know, you, the, you mostly focus on is uh, capital raising and people. 
Now, the yep. people I get, the capital raising is, especially if you're trying to do something you know that requires the regulatory uh, oversight and deals with a bunch of studies and all of that, uh, it can definitely be capital intensive. And so, you know, we are, uh, we actually were, we were spun out of a uh, top 25 global market research company, which is not where you'd expect to see a, a healthcare company come from. <laughs> uh, but the, um, you know, so there was some seed capital that, that came from that. And then we've, you know, we've, we've raised capital along the way. We've raised about 23 million total to date. Um, and, uh, you know, but as long as you can demonstrate that you're creating value and that there is a clear road ahead and you've got your clear milestones, um, then it uh, definitely becomes easier over time. It's never easy when you're going out of the gate and you're saying, hey, uh, look at this cool <laughs> entertainment device. By the way, we're going to solve the opioid epidemic with it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, no big deal. And, uh, and, and that one is like, there were a lot of, a lot of head scratching, but you know, I think you have to have belief in what it is you're doing, be willing to pivot where you need to pivot, uh, but, but have those two together and, uh, and, and execute along the way. And, and at the end of the day, it's execution. And, um, and then you're, you have the opportunity to create some real value for patients, providers, payers, and shareholders. And for the people, I mean, if, if people are if starting companies in healthcare or interested in startups in this kind of space as well, from your investor perspective, then what was it? Are they expecting the same returns as any other company in terms of your investors and you get twenty three million in investment? Because uh, this is a little bit different in terms of what the model is. I'm curious as to like how you found those investors that aligned with what you were doing. I'm curious. Yeah, it, it, so it's a. Uh... It's definitely been a challenge. Listen, I, you know, uh, and I was talking to a, a friend of mine in uh, on the healthcare investing side, and we were talking about digital health specifically. And he's, you know, because digital health is the nexus of healthcare side, and obviously technology, right? Technology yeah. investors they don't really think about patents. They don't care about patents. That they that's more about you know what are the different things you build to create network externalities and you know, the other forms of barriers to entry and your partnerships that you have to drive scale, and all of that. But they don't understand the healthcare side of it. They don't understand necessarily the regulatory pathway or the payer pathway, all of that. Flip side is you've got healthcare investors that don't really understand the technology side. They're focused on what's the, what's the molecule? What's the patent you have on that molecule that's going to give me a 17-year window of protection? Yeah. And so they're sort of scratching their heads to understand, well, how do you build sustainable competitive advantage when you can't necessarily get a patent on a molecule. And so it's been fascinating to, to go through that and to really be able to articulate a story that, uh, that is compelling, that they can understand that says, I want to buy in on this. And this will go back to two things. One is I do think you always need to be able to tell that compelling story, that narrative that says why this matters. And then two is the people, you know, be able to say that, we're the, we've, we've either done it before or we, you know, we're, we're working with some of the best in class people. I talked about as an example, Beth Darnall. There's really only one Beth Darnall out there. Uh, as an example, our head of commercialization and Everett Crosland, probably one of only three or four people that are, uh, that really understand the reimbursement landscape for digital th therapeutics. And, uh, and so you go out and you, you, you be able to point to those people that helps give you that sustainable advantage. And then the last thing is just execution, right? Always being able to execute on this, to say this is what we said we're going to do. This is what we've done. 
and this is how we're going to execute going forward. And you build that track record of, of credibility so that they believe in what you're doing. And, and with the company too, there's so many things that I would love to go through. But one of the things I'm looking at uh, from the research I've done before this interview of looking at other technologies and new things that are going to be coming up next and what you want to app, you know, eventually take applied VR, one of them being haptics was mentioned. Where do you see, whether it be haptics or other technology, uh, influencing how the ultimate outcome of applied VR is in terms of what this looks like? Because there's so many things that could be happening. I'm curious, yeah. as what's like the ultimate kind of vision, understanding the technologies that may be available soon? Yeah, well, so it's, you know, I do think that we're, this is kind of like the Cambrian explosion right now of uh, VR and AR. And, you know, we have Apple that's looking to come out here the next couple of years. And usually they do something, they, they do it in a big way. And they're really good <laughs> yeah. at that form factor side of things. Um, and, and so I, we can't even imagine what the, maybe four or five years time, what the device is going to look like. Um, but that gets me really excited because we want to help shape that. And so one of the things that we're big believers in, you talked about haptics, that that can be a component of it. The other one is, you know, we talk about this biodata platform we've developed, but ultimately, how do we embed in the devices themselves sensors that can read things like HR, heart rate variability, or that can read brainwaves, EEG, and, you know, use your, so to use a neural feedback loop where you can use your own brainwaves to or to, you know, to modulate your own brainwaves and get it into a state that has an impact on the VR. Uh, we, we can take those signals today and do anything we want with them, but the form factor isn't there yet, right? You, and yeah. again, it goes back to that. If you've got to ask that person to put something else in, um, you know, to, to wear two or three devices at one time, it's just not going to work. Think about the haptics or you think about, um, you know, building in other biosensors into the headsets then you got to say, you know, how does that enable us to enhance that individualized, personalized care? And we, we think about this as almost precision VR, that that's where we want to get is this precision VR. And the second thing we think about is ultimately, again, recognizing that uh, there isn't ubiquity of devices in households today. We ultimately believe that we can become the CVS of VR. That you, that every single device that we get out in the marketplace, sitting in someone's home, that now has become almost a, a pharmacy for us to dispense not only our therapeutic VR content, but also third party. And as we yeah. start to build out that commercial pathway, that's going to enable us to really tap into and help grow the amazing uh, innovation within the marketplace itself of someone who has an idea of building something that they want to use to help their mother, brother, father, daughter, but they have no idea how to think about bringing it to market. And if we can actually create this pharmacy and we have the, the, the tools to validate it, to help bring it to market, then we can um, make a, uh, you know, we can really make a big impact in, in, in making VR part of standard of care for healthcare as a whole. Matthew, with, with Applied VR, I'm curious as to how your how your time is spent today. Because as CEO, as you mentioned, a lot of it is on the the kind of fundraising side of it, people side of it. But I'd like to get a little more granular. Like, take me through a a, a day of of Matthew Stout of Applied VR. Like, what are you doing day to day uh, with the company? Uh, so, it, first and foremost, it really is all about the people. That is, uh, you know, I especially in this time of COVID, when you're not, you don't have the luxury of being able to go into an office together. 
yeah. you know, reaching out and just checking in on everybody. I, you know, I, I try uh, to every day at least do a call with one different person on the team just to spend my time connecting with them and just checking in to see how they're doing. Not necessarily about their, their work or anything, I, although I do obviously check about that, but more about yeah. how they're doing as a person. How do you, you know, and that helps to build bonds. Um, and then the second thing is, you know, making sure that we, everyone is focused on the culture and that we are, you know, living as an organization up to the, the core um, values of our company. Um, three is always thinking about how are we trying to drive the business forward from partnerships perspective. So right now we're doing a lot of work with uh, payers and starting to engage payers to be partners and develop that body of evidence. Uh, the fourth one is product. Uh, thinking about, you know, where are we in the product development cycle? Uh, we're actually, we're getting ready to launch a, a whole new addition to um, our core platform. It's, a, it's enabling social VR, group therapy through social VR that recognizes that uh, isolation that we're facing right now um, due to COVID. And that in general, the, 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 the older population as a whole is starting to, to face that isolation. Um, and making sure that you know, getting into the, into the the product and testing it out and seeing how it's doing, and then finally, it, you know, it is fundraising. You're still going out there and being. I'm, yeah. I'm, it's not just fundraising. It's it's more about being an evangelist for what we're doing. You know, getting out there and whether it be you know talking to to people like yourself or uh, CES or you know working with Brandon Spiegel, Dr. Brandon Spiegel over at Cedars with uh, the WeMed conference. You know, how do we continue to be advocates for the space as a whole and talk about how this, you know, this is, uh, this is ultimately going to be a part of standard of care for pain management. Well, I have a couple questions before we kind of wrap things up here, but I'm just curious with, with all of this, I mean, how are you educating yourself kind of personally on these issues and where you want to take things? Cause it is like, uh, ever evolving field, obviously, like I'm just curious how you personally are being educated around this as you're also running a company. Yeah, you know, it's, I, I am, uh, I will say, I always love the big new idea. And that's the hardest thing, too, is because healthcare can take so long to make that transformation. Sometimes you kind of get excited by what's the next big thing around the corner, right? And, uh, but if you focus too much of your time on that, looking to the future, you're, that's where the execution breaks down in the present. And so, um, and I think I think that's one of the, my biggest struggles is that time management side of trying to find the balance of focusing on what we need to do today to be successful versus thinking out, you know, one to three to five years and trying to just consume all of the information that I mean, you, know, you literally, especially thinking about healthcare, digital health, chronic pain, you could spend your entire every single day <laughs> just reading and finding something new. Yeah. Um, but that's where you also, you know, you, you trust the people around you so that I, I don't necessarily need to read every single thing about every single aspect of the business. You've got people around you that, that can, that really understands that and can help synthesize the key things. So one example of this is, you know, CMS right now is looking at a new, um, or, uh, connecting with the FDA on breakthrough therapy designation. They, they might if your product can fit within a certain category uh, that where there's not a lot of alternatives out there, you're addressing sort of life-threatening issues, 
you can get this thing called breakthrough therapy designation. And before that was great, it would help you accelerate your timelines in terms of meetings with the FDA, but it wasn't necessarily connected into any reimbursement pathway. And now uh, CMS is, again, that's Medicare, Medicaid, CMS is talking about um, or you know, looking at how do they start to drive reimbursement for those devices that do get that breakthrough therapy designation. Now, that's something on that regulatory side that's kind of esoteric at first. And uh, I would never be able to necessarily pick up on all the, the implications of that for our business out of the gate. But having someone like you know, Everett on our team, well, that's great because he is, you know, I remember when actually that one dropped, I talked to him the next day. And I was like, hey, how you doing? You sound a little off. And he's like, oh, you know, I was up last night until midnight because I was getting ready for this thing to drop. Well, that's awesome that he is so engaged and like he couldn't <laughs> let himself go to sleep because he was so excited about this nuanced piece of legislate, uh, potential legislation or policy change coming down the pipeline. And so having, yeah. you know, it goes back to the team, having people that are intellectually curious, that are always looking ahead and, and want to be the best at what they do, that helps me be the best at what I do. Absolutely. And where can people go to learn more about Applied VR, get in touch with you if they want to partner up or anything as well? Uh, go to AppliedVR.io. And my I'm Matthew at AppliedVR.io. Perfect. Matthew, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Hey, Justin, it was great. I absolutely love what you're doing and I love the conversation. This episode is brought to you by Hawk Media, a full-service outsourced CMO based in Santa Monica, California, providing guidance, planning, and execution to grow brands of all sizes, industries, and business models. Hawk Media is recognized by Inc. as one of the fastest-growing marketing consultancies, and their collaborative process, a la carte offering, and month-to-month fee structure give clients the flexibility they need to boost digital revenues and marketing ROI. Hawk Media, the company, has serviced over 1,500 brands of all sizes, ranging from startups like Tomorrow Melon, SIO Beauty, and Bottle Keeper, to household names like Red Bull, Verizon Wireless, and Alibaba. And also, I had the founder and CEO of Hawk Media, Eric Huberman, on the podcast in episode number 23, if you want to take a listen. And to get a free consultation, head on over to hawkmedia.com, and be sure to mention Just Go Grind. Thank you for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. The Weekly Grind, which is my weekly newsletter, comes out every single Friday. You can find it at justgogrind.com newsletter. This is filled with tips, tools, and strategies for growing your business. If you want to know how to launch a business, how to grow it, how to get it off the ground, find employees, all these different things. There's a few tips, tools, and strategies every single week I deliver right to you justgrind.com slash newsletter. Check it out. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you in the next episode.